Hello, my name is Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. Welcome to the first of a loose two-parter episode about truth in cinema. Today, we're chatting with writer and director Witt Stillman about verite in narrative films, the idea of accuracy and realism in how they're made, or more to the point, Witt's opposition to the idea. Next week, we'll talk about truth and realism in documentary with Sophie Rambari. But for now, hit it, Devin. Hit it. Welcome to Film Formally. Hello. Hello. It took a little longer because I had to look up. I had to look up epistemological. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're speaking to Whit Stillman, writer and director of films like 1998's *The Last Days of Disco* and 2016's *Love and Friendship*, about the subject of verite in filmmaking, truth, realism, a recognizable authenticity to how things really are. We're going to discuss how we view those ideas as filmmakers, how they affect our choices and how they interface with stuff like style and representing stuff. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Wit. Thanks very much. But we're kind of talking we're kind of not talking about verite. We're talking about the opposite. Mhm. Talking about unverite. Yes, that's my field. What do you mean by that? What's unverite to you? When Devin and I did our little cheating um pre-conversation, um I went into a rant about how I thought the sort of obsession with truth in cinema was incredibly misleading and unhelpful because everything really entertaining and positive and constructive is is false and and is um, is is constructed. And in order to sort of get the heart of life and the heart of truth, you can't do uh, verite. One of the great problems of cinema is that the camera lens is very cruel. It's, it's really nasty. And almost everything it sees left to its own devices is going to be sort of dehumanized. It's going to be drained of the life force. And um, we have to do a great deal of artificial things in order to get the heart back on the screen and, and the brain back on the screen. And to go to another possible subject we could go into after we destroy Verite, um, I think one of the most harmful things uh, in cinema is the idea that cinema is a visual medium. And this is, I'm not sure if the word shibboleth or cliche or um, uh, this has become really dominant um, sort of uh, ideologically, aesthetically, the idea is cinema is a visual medium. And that, again, drains it a lot of its interest. And it's sort of cinema lost 20 IQ points when this became widely accepted because we get a lot of really dumb films where people just show things and don't help us out at all with with much else. Is there a specific turning point where you feel that cinema, or at least the wide conceptions of cinema, became more about this kind of prosaic realism? Well... I think one of the things that happened was that we had great cinema before so-called sound cinema. So it really was great. Um, it was developing in a wonderful way, but it had sound. Usually it was 
a lot of music was being played while people were watching so-called silent films. And there were very well thought out words too. Um, there were sort of the words one could assume from what was being um, shown on the screen and there were um, some quite brilliant title card writing. So it was never sort of devoid of those elements. And when sound films started, there's a lot of awkwardness and a lot of people attached to silent cinema and all the advances that it made. It sort of, cinema took a few steps back in some ways as it was taking other steps forward in the transition from uh, silent to sound cinema. And um, it sort of grew up uh, this idea because in the 30s, um, you really have a festival of sound cinema where people are really using everything um, to make a, a to make great stories and great films. And in my mind, um, following World War II, cinema took a big hit. And once this I ideal of cinema as a visual medium uh, gained ground among every sort of film school graduate or anyone read an article on cinema, it, it really lowered the elements that people would add to make a, a movie a good movie. Right now, they've just opened sort of awards voting. So if you belong to some sort of association where you get access to the end of the year films, um, you get to look at a lot of films or at least look at the first five minutes of a lot of films because most are, are unbearable. And one of the sides of unbearableness is sort of European art cinema where it's just very slow and pretentious sort of concepts, visual concepts, um, with no real desire to entertain, explain, narrate, and people are sort of locked in in certain aesthetic boxes um, that really don't help them at all and certainly don't help the viewer. So if I'm understanding your uh, your kind of theory of the case here on the history of this wit, it's kind of there is silent with usually some sort of live accompaniment cinema, um, um, and which text. is using, yeah, which is using uh, the 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 full range of its techniques available, and then sound cinema uh, emerges, and for the first ten fifteen years of that, there's a huge emphasis on using all the tools available, and then then there's a turn towards this idea of cinema as a primarily visual medium, and it's not that there's less techniques being used, it's that the available techniques uh, are being diluted. And am I catching your drift right that you think it's a big one of those is like sound is being left on the table? or In certain ways, yeah, definitely words are um, and, um, and dialogue. So, I mean, I think another, you know, another problem is a problem in many areas of life and, and civilization, which is the idea of progress. In former times, there was much more attention to the idea of decline. So one of our great heroes in university, because of a, a great professor, we had a professor called Walter Jackson Bate, who um, his great subject of study was the um, British lexicographer and essayist Samuel Johnson. And Samuel Johnson, one of his obsessions was sort of the decline that people, when they start a form, there's a great richness and brilliance and that as the form is developed by other people, there, there's a dwindling and a decline and um, sort of a, of a farcical diminution of the great medium. And I, I think you can see this in a lot of areas when there's something new 
it kind of grows into something great as people learn how to use the new thing. It's, it becomes a golden age. And then you have um, the inevitable decline. I think in cinema, when there's sort of new schools, there can be great energy for a while that then declines. So I think narrative cinema, uh, the late 20s and, and, and 30s, it's just amazing how great it was. But the sort of techniques of camera and montage, which we also call editing, were really well developed by the 20s. And so sometimes you see someone who thinks they're doing great stuff now, but really what was good about that was already done in the, in the, in the 20s in terms of visual and the 30s in terms of other things. And the things they were not doing that certain people are doing now, they chose not to do because they weren't good ideas. They, 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 they said, well, let's not do that because it just draws attention to the camera and is, is pretentious and silly. And so, but I think that when the French New Wave came in, when it was Truffaut and Godard, there again was a lot of excitement because this is sort of new. And I think before that, Rosalie and, and Vittorio de Sica, there's another energy, like when people find a new way of doing things, a new approach, um, a new sort of industrial process. Um, and then I think also, I mean, I know from my friends in Spain that they sort of caught the Truffaultian bug at the end of the 70s and did great things. The Madrid School of Comedy of the early 80s was great. And then we got it here in the United States with John Sales and Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee and people like that um, leading the way in indie cinema, which was, I think, really great. I think Mumblecore, again, um, people sort of reinvented things and they did great things or are doing great things. And so I think that um, there are these moments of energy when people have a really new approach to, to something. And, um, and it's great when they don't um, limit themselves. So... Getting back to Verite, I think one of the things I was going off on is a professor of visual studies um, at Harvard when I was there. I never got into any. I got into Harvard and then did not get into anything after that. So Harvard was sort of divided up into all these sort of elite seminars, concentrations, courses that you needed to uh, impress the professor with your seriousness in order to get in. And of course, <laughs> I didn't get into any of those. As a refuge, I went into the undergraduate organizations that had competitions where it was like an open competition. It wasn't sort of sucking up and talking about epistemology and things like that. You actually had to <laughs> had to work for it. So I had a grueling newspaper competition, which we sort of parody in Damsels in Distress with the Daily Complainer. Um, is the Harvard Crimson competition that was really grueling and really great training. And then I also tried to write um, musical comedies for the Hasty Pudding. And they, they ultimately uh, weren't chosen for production, but it really led me into something that I wanted to do and kind of got to do with Zamsels in Distress. So um, I've gone far afield. We can get back to the original topic of Verite when you want. Well, for for the record, for anyone listening, uh, Witz, we laughed at Wit's little uh, crack about epistemology because Devin used the word in a phone conversation with him, and uh, yeah. it has. It's uh, one of my favorite crutches, that word, um, <laughs> <laughs> when I don't have anything smarter to say. Um, but I actually want to uh, I want to talk about damsels in distress for a second and its relationship to 
the real because um uh, at least in of the i guess i was about to say of the five films of yours that i've seen but i think that's all all the features but um the uh that film feels like the most uh overtly disconnected from a prosaic reality right where it feels very um it almost feels like a like, like you mentioned it this sort of you're satirizing it but it really feels like a like a farce in that none of the characters feel like a documentary portrait of a real character there's a lot of softening filters on the lenses even um even the score is very uh forward yeah do you feel the same way about that film in that it's more kind of disconnected from a documentary reality and why did you make those decisions why that film well, I felt I left reality in the tail credits of um, Last Days of Disco. Um, that we, but we sort of cheated by pretending it was a, a credit sequence and you know having the credits roll at a certain point. So this very little moment of sort of within the film uh, where the unreality is. Um, but I, I adored that, um, and, and other people liked it. I've been interested in doing things more in the in the sort of adventure romance comedy area and really got caught up in some projects that were cul-de-sacs rabbit holes where I couldn't get them off the ground and you know it's 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 hard to change uh, genres to go from doing one kind of thing to doing another kind of thing and I guess it should be hard because people you might have semi-convinced people that you can do one thing but they're totally unconvinced you can do anything else I did have the idea of doing sort of a stealth musical. It wouldn't be like the kind of musical where they break into song all the time, but it would have some of those elements. And I was surprised at, at what a sort of ambivalent reaction we got. I mean, I, I, I love the film. It's probably my favorite of, of the films. I really hope that it'll sort of be rediscovered and, and revalued. A little bit like The Big Lebowski was that when it came out at the same time as Last Days of Disco, both Last Days of Disco and Big Lebowski had kind of, again, ambivalent uh, reactions when they first came out. And Big, Big Lebowski was called the Big Letdownski. That was the word on the Big Lebowski. <laughs> and then in my daughter's generation, it became, you know, discovered and loved. And, and Last Days of Disco, I think a little bit thanks to Universal and Warner's having the rights and putting it on TV, The Last Days of Disco kind of discovered its audience and got a much better reputation subsequently to its original release. Also, getting farther away from sort of the people who are always saying, oh, this is inaccurate, or I went to a disco and it wasn't like that, or I worked in publishing and it wasn't like that. Um, because um, I think one of the great strengths of of Metropolitan commercially is there almost no film critics who thought they were ex experts on debutante parties. That was not a category. <laughs> and so every other area, people say, well, I went to Barcelona and people really speak Catalan there. Why aren't they speaking Catalan in this movie? You know, the, everyone else, you know, they're, they're experts and, and, you know, have to criticize. Not realizing that they're different publishing houses and they're different discos. And um, maybe the publishing house I worked at was different from the publishing house that Sloane Crossley worked at. Because she did a fact check on um, publishing movies in the New York Times and we got into a wrangle about it because I described exactly how it was a double day but she was at Random House and she said oh it's not that way at all in publishing but we knew that Random House had a totally different system than um, 
than Doubleday, and we mock them for it. Um, so I don't know about damsels in distress. I, I was really surprised that people couldn't accept the stylization. I saw it as, as you know, perfectly acceptable, understandable stylization. And um, I always find it interesting, like, I'm not... I think IMDb is kind of a terrible site. It sort of doesn't value films correctly. Um, but it is kind of interesting to look at, like, the percentages of which different groups like or don't like a film. So Damsels, although it's quite female-focused, is like more by men than women <clears throat> and more by um, very young people than sort of 35-year-olds. Wait, um, wait, are you telling me that your top 10 films aren't The Shawshank Redemption, The Dark Knight, Pulp <laughs> Fiction, and Fight Club? I'm shocked. <laughs> Is that it? Um, Shawshank like Redemption. I mean, that was tough for my loyalties because um, it came out right when I was being incredibly well treated by Castle Rock, um, and hmm. you know, I I obviously didn't like it that much. But um, uh, I mean, I was at the premiere, and and you know, we had to say it was great. Blah blah blah. But um, but, um yeah. Anyway. It's interesting that Castle Rock went from really good popular comedies to other kinds of films. So you're mentioning IMDb and its relationship to people's reaction to the theatricality of Damsels in Distress. I'd love to hear more about that. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. I mean, to go under 6.0 really, really feels like a disgrace. But, um, <laughs> but then my daughter would say, oh, no, we hate IMDb ratings. We only go by Rotten Tomatoes. Not that that's good. I, I actually can't look at Rotten Tomatoes anymore because... Um, it thinks I have some sort of ad blocker, and oh. <laughs> there's a big thing blocking the screen all the time. So I, I don't know. I keep trying, but that might be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good thing. Get me out of a bad yeah. habit. It's like this. Uh, this pandemic has gotten some people out of bad habits. So, what elements of the kind of theatricality and damsels in distress um, do, do you think might be giving some people pause? Because um, I, I found it really. I watched it actually right after my wife and I kind of binge watched a bunch of um, uh, Fred Astaire musicals. <laughs> and I feel like it, it felt that was a good context for it. Um, exactly. In that they both established very brittle realities. Like I think, if, is it Top Hat, the ending where... I don't consider them Venice brittle. I don't consider that a brittle reality. I think it's a dreamy reality, Top Hat and Gay mm. Divorcee. Um, I think it's just a, it's a wonderful dream. Um, those are two of my favorite films, The Gate of Orsay and uh, Top Hat. There's a moment in um, Damsels in Distress that I think, uh, I mean, I, I a lot of my notes about this stuff are, are sound in your film's wit, but uh, uh, it's a character falls over the balcony and as he falls, there's that um, famous, at least to those of us who recognize these things, is that famous like cat meowling <laughs> screech sound. <laughs> yeah. And either either you find that either you find that screamingly funny, or which, or would, be, you don't. which would be me. I just love that so much. The thing is, I think maybe we're going down the wrong path in saying the reason why um, people respond less to damsels is because of its unreality. I really think I think all our films kind of attack the spectator. So. There are a lot of sort of commonplace assumptions that I don't go along with and really object to. And therefore, the films are trying to subvert those 
those um, those points of view and, and sort of change them, educate people. No, sort sort of open people's minds up to some different ways of thinking, and with different levels of aggressiveness and obviousness. And um, damsels is really an attack on a lot of things that people hold dear. I mean, people really love this idea of these sort of insider mean girls um, and the outs- nice outsider sweet person. And we do the opposite uh, in Damsels where Violet, who I think everyone's been conditioned by every teen movie they've ever seen to assume that Violet is like, a bad character. She's mean and she's snobbish and she has high standards and all this kind of stuff. And Lily is like the likable character and, and all that. And, you know, the normal one and and all these things. And um, I'm, I'm sort of the opposite side of the fence. And people are so ingrained in this idea that even though we kind of show that Violet is kind of great, she's crazy, but she's, she's sort of great, um, they just cannot let go of the idea that Violet's going to be the bad character, and they just won't, won't let go of it, and they just find it very irritating and are very angry. Um, you know, so many people only watch 10 minutes of the movie. There is a sort of pretty important critic um, in um, England who, I think before she was a, a film critic, um, I mean, she's a, a journalist who's very high profile, does sort of nasty interviews, and um, was given the film slot, you know, in recent years. And I actually benefited because she liked Love and Friendship because I think she's very much like the Lady Susan character in Love and Friendship. Um, she blamed everything that was sort of off in the movie on the American director when all those things were things I'd fought about with, with British people. So... Um, you know, she just assumes that. But, um, so she tweeted, like, oh, I, I, I think the first Saturday of the film in, in England, where it got pretty good reaction, pretty good, review, you know, really good reviews, um, I left this terrible film after 18 minutes. It's horrible. And I think, God, leave a film after 18 minutes and you're an influential journalist. And, I mean, 18 minutes, that means, like, after eight minutes, she was really seriously thinking of leaving. You know, 11 minutes, she was deciding that she was going to leave. Like, 14 minutes, she was, like, starting to annoy people by standing up and, and uh, you know, passing by their knees. And 18 minutes, she was probably, you know, leaving the doors out in the back with a rumpf. And, and I mean, what is it in a film that, like, within nine minutes she must have been totally against it and the film doesn't really start until 30 minutes in when when violet is dumped by her boyfriend oops spoiler sorry we'll bleep it we'll bleep it no um, don't let them, I, my, let them uh, be spoiled and that makes sense as a kind of diagnosis of the reception of damsels in distress because i mean like is damsels in distress really like less uh, whatever real or or authentic than like uh, American Pie or something, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, it's yeah. I it, it makes sense to me to diagnose it as a question of uh, people being upset by shattered archetypes, right? Yeah, that it's, yeah. I think it's ideological, um, and maybe there there's something I didn't do correctly um, to get 
beyond that, but maybe it's just something that needs to sit there and find its way. You know, I just, that's what I hope. I mean, also, it had sort of an odd release. Um, you know, the company that had it, it's a really admirable company, Sony Pictures Classics, but they have their system for not losing money. And it's been great because it allows them to stay in business and to release a lot of films. But they can't, their whole system is that they have these deals through Sony for use of films in different countries and different platforms. And they know that if they don't spend too much, um, don't risk too much in the release, that they will come out in the black or in the green on this film. So damsels in distress, I mean, people mock how low the box office was, but all it needed to do is $1 million to latch on to all those Sony deals that we had. And so the moment it crossed a million, they just stopped spending any money on it at all. And it's been really profitable um, for those investors. And even the cast, you know, they're getting their um, net points and things like that. I mean, all our films except for Disco have been profitable. And that was because we did it under the the auspices of a a studio and we had to do everything in the studio way. And, and, um, you know, part of that was just having to spend a lot more money to do a studio film rather than the kind of film we do. One thing about kind of while we're on the subject of your 21st century work, um, one thing that really stuck out to me uh, on reviewing it all is that uh, I think with Damsels in Distress, um, you and Damsels in Distress, sorry, um, you and uh, Doug Emmett uh, shot it digitally, I believe. Uh, and then Love and Friendship also, I believe, was shot digitally, but there's more of like an attempt to make it look like film. Did did the shooting medium, uh, in contrast to the three 90s films that you made, which were shot in celluloid, um, did the shooting medium impact, do you think, the audience's reception of, of, of the reality of those films? No, I don't think so. That's a very clear answer. I think we did some things that were shocking, I guess, to some people in the business, um, like blowing out the sun in some scenes. But I, I adored that. I, I love that. I, I love that photography. Um, I, I, I actually love digital. Um, I much prefer to celluloid. I mean, there's so many nightmares. So many nightmares of celluloid. Oh my gosh! I heavily sympathize with the love of digital. I've been. Um, I started out shooting on film in film school, and then quickly, immediately fell in love with uh, fairly low grade digital. To, to me, I don't know. It, it, especially when we're working within uh, constraints of uh, budget, etc. It's so freeing. You can take so many more risks. Um, my uh, my general philosophy on like digital versus film. Like one of my biggest reasons why early on I decided, okay, I'm a digital guy, is that like film directors should not have to be mechanics. You know what I mean? And with celluloid, you have to be a mechanic basically in order to respond to some of the problems that you encounter. Yeah. I'd love to, because you mentioned it as a turning point of sorts in uh, uh, leaving behind reality in films. I'd love to chat a little bit about the last days of disco, particularly I think some of the sound uh, design choices are, uh, are really emblematic of some of these distinctions of um, um, what we consider real or not real. I mean, the film was hugely criticized for not representing everyone's idea of a disco. And it's true, it's more sort of European style in the sense that, um, you know, in the sort of more elegant, sometimes smaller European 
discos, discotheques, starting from the 60s, you could talk to people. Um, it wasn't the deafening sound. Um, and I don't know, I didn't want the people shouting dialogue and, you know, doing all that. So it's a, a choice to not worry about that too much. Um, and yet have the sound loud enough so that when it's a dancing um, scene, when it's really about the dancing, then the music is up where it should be. But if they're, and we had all kinds of, you know, excuses for why the acoustics were so great off the dance floor. I mean, my, my film teacher was mostly John Thomas. Um, so, so the first collaborators I worked with knew a lot more than I did, which everyone knew a lot more than I did. And um, so John Thomas, um, cinematographer particularly, um, Brian Greenbaum, the production manager, and Chris Tellefson, the editor, and, um, and Mark Suazo, the composer, then, you know, later Dom Tavella, the mixer. Um, John was very good about walking me through uh, certain things. And as far as Verite, when we were doing the second film, Damsel, uh, excuse me, um, Barcelona, in Barcelona, um, we had a lot of scenes where the two cousins, played by Chris Eigerman and um, Taylor Nichols, are driving around um, in an uh, old BMW in Barcelona, supposed to be Ted's BMW. John was saying, now, how do you want the characters lit in um, the car? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, um, do you want, you know, sort of artificial lighting inside so we see their faces? And, um, or do you want sort of the natural look, just, just photographing it without the, the additional lighting where um, what you'd see would be the reflection of, you know, the exterior on the windshield. It would be the leaves and things like that. So I said, well, why would, why would I want to see that? Why would I want to see the reflection of leaves on the window? So I, I want to, and he said, well, people consider it more you know, realistic. And said, no, I, I want to see their faces, so you know, light them up. And, and the thing is, there's this idea that, oh, gosh, no lighting on the inside. Uh, it's realistic. Um, but who is going to go around listening to a conversation through a windshield in which you can't see the the people talking, you just see reflections of leaves. I mean, whoever looks at that, I mean, and so many things in Verite are just so false and and so distancing from humanity and rea and sort of our, our felt emotional reality. And it's just one thing after another that's really tiresome and stupid. And in watching these European art films that have been put up for awards consideration, just one film after another with just this completely tiresome attitude towards towards what they're doing and so pretentious and empty at the same time. I ran into this at Harvard in the program I wasn't getting into. Um, there's a guy named, I think Rogers, um, who's the film guy at Harvard. Harvard's not really a film school, so you know. Uh, and in the Department of Visual Studies, Viz Stud, um, where I could never could get arrested. He'd made these documentaries in the 60s that were the kind of thing like no narration, no story, just working class kids at a quarry swimming hole. And the sort of world of documentary in that period when the aesthetic ideas were just so limiting and so uninteresting of just having the camera tell the story. It's been so wonderful to see people turning documentaries into true narratives and really bringing out people's humanity and creating stories and 
I mean, it's been just wonderful since people have left those tiresome ideas behind. But for the verite thing you get all the time, and there are all these biases in favor of things like continuous takes, continuous shots, and all these things that tend to militate against what is so great in cinema, because one of the greatest things in cinema, which if you try to write a play, you you learn to appreciate more, is you can cut. I mean, the cutting is fantastic. And in a play, you have to sort of figure out how to get the characters on and off stage and all that kind of stuff. In cinema, you can just go from one thing to another, boom, 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 and just do so many things cutting. And um, the cast rock people used to tell a story about Rob Reiner, um, the cinematographer going over a, a thing in uh, Misery where the cinematographer wanted to do a long tracking shot, you know, and the rapper said, yeah, and then we'll go in here, boom, and look at him, and, and, and the cinematographer said, no, no, we'll shoot this long shot, and Robert Reiner said, no, no, we'll go in, boom, and um, I, I guess you can do, you know, great things with continuing shots, but it's a little bit like, you know, I'm only going to use half the letters in the alphabet. Well, it's not exactly like that, but it's it's like something or other. I mean, you you refer to it as pretentious and empty, I'm, and I'm just wondering: Do you just find it's uh, that it's heavy-handed symbolism? It's exterior. Is it? No, it's very exterior mm-hmm. and 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 false. Um, I mean, I go so far as if I see that in a movie, I almost don't want to watch the rest. I mean, if the guy's making stupid decisions like that, um, goodbye. I don't have time for for this movie. Um, but no, I won't go that far because who knows? People can come up with something good. You got to wait at least eighteen minutes. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm actually worse than that. But I don't tweet about it to my fifty thousand followers. I don't have fifty thousand followers anyway. But um, I think this woman had like hundred thousand followers when she trashed my movie on the Saturday matinee. Um, so um, no, I'm not good at that. Because I mean, I I I I don't watch films as homework except very rarely when it's like to look at a performance or some crew member's work or, or something like that. I think it's supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to be something, um, you know, like the novels you read and, and not everything is education. One kind of uh, presupposition we're making, I guess, is that um, these films are all about people, right? And the stories of people. Um, and I, I think to me... Um, one thing that this gets at is the idea of priorities, right? So if a filmmaker wants to shoot those leaves, uh, you know, then the film becomes not about the characters necessarily, but the film becomes about those leaves. So I, I think that I see a way of you know shooting those leaves if you're a director who is cognizant of, okay, this is not a shot about the characters in the car. This is a shot about the feeling of the leaves. Um, but but I, think I don't that's think that's a often, good, really you know, good way to go because you only see the leaves reflected in a car's windows in some pretentious film. I mean, in real life, we don't look at that. <laughs> it doesn't exist in the, in the real world. It's only something that exists in bad films. Um, uh, so, Well, I would, I, would offer th- I would offer this, is that you might see it in real life if you were um, um, someone uh, uh, e- like attempting to eavesdrop or to spy on a conversation, right? Like if you're attempted, like it, it could give you a sense okay. of like a, a voyeuristic, you, okay. you know what I, okay. you know what I'm you saying? I guess I'm splitting hairs on, but you like it doesn't something. apply to, to the scene shot. But. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the best ways to see a movie is, is what you used to get like with pay TV channels where like you, you're staying at some, your house sitting at some place 
where they have pay TV and you turn on something and it's already started and you don't expect to watch it, but you get hooked into it and you can have a really great cinema experience. Um, and sometimes I find things are greatly helped by not seeing the first 15 minutes because there's a tendency in our business to have all these development people who want everything really explained and it really takes a lot out of the joy of, of figuring things out if everything um, is explained. When sort of Castle Rock films started going downhill, I mean, this period when Rob Reiner only made successful, pretty good films, there was the uh, original screening, sort of public screening of um, A Few Good Men. The reaction of the people there, the screening, um, because there's, you know, party afterwards, which is, again, a terrible way to show a film because people just want their cocktails. Um, like, no one liked it, um, except for two people. Except for two people. Two women really liked it. They both had gotten there late. They both had missed the scene where you see the murder oh. or whatever it was. And it's just so confounding for the way things are sort of manipulated in the commercial business where everyone is saying, we have to explain this, you have to explain that. Because like in the questionnaires, people say, well, I don't understand, you know. But, but that, that, a lot of that has to be ignored. I mean, people are, and, and I remember getting notes from something I was working on. I haven't usually had to go through that, where constantly there'd be some note that something isn't explained. And it was perfectly well explained by the end of the scene. But I think people were seeing the beginning of the scene and saying, oh, this is not explained, remembering, oh, that it was not explained without ever erasing it because it's explained at the end of the scene. And <laughs> the scene would be completely uninteresting if you knew at the beginning of the scene what's going to be revealed at the end of the scene. And so this whole thing of over-explaining is a big problem in cinema. It's like... Uh, um I mean, this is a film I love, but the, uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, Barry Lyndon, yeah. where at the beginning of every sequence, there will be like a title card laying out exactly what's about to happen. And of course, people react against that <laughs> really strongly. No, that was the first um, Kubrick but, I really liked. Oh, yeah, I love that. It's my favorite <laughs> of his films for sure. Um, but the I, I get what you mean, the idea of um, I don't need to watch you set the table. I just want to sit down and eat, I guess, is the kind of attitude towards films that you're talking about i think and this is true in most of your films or all of your films uh but especially metropolitan the matter in which the characters talk is uh i've i've personally never been to a party where like where characters speak like this um and um that speaks very badly for simon fraser university oh no <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know. We're, uh, my university. Harvard friends say people talk exactly that way. Really? Um, yep. So I want to ask about that. So um, the the manner in which your characters speak in your films, like the I would say the uh, almost like it feels like every every sentence has like five qualifiers to it in in these films, um, and everything is very um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Will um, not discursive. Good, bad. I don't know. <laughs> well, um, uh, there's very ornate sentence structures. I ornate sentence in your dialogue structures. way. I think that's that's fair to say. That's exactly the phrase I'm looking for. Well, thanks. Um, so, no e and even the characters that you know that attend the disco in Last Days of Disco speak in this fairly ornate way. Um, is that 
a case of you kind of writing characters that speak like people you know or yourself or are you trying to kind of um, divorce those characters from kind of a more you know realistic verite sense well i'm not trying to divorce them from from verite but i'm trying to sort of get the most i can get into it and that remains sort of not exactly plausible but that'll pass muster um so i wanted the most sort of content interesting content and and meaning i can get in without it becomes so outrageously unrealistic that it sort of stops the whole works you know what i mean so i'm not trying to be unrealistic and i'm not trying to be realistic i'm trying to communicate as much of the ideas as possible in a way that will be entertaining for people and ultimately funny a lot of people really like and, and i've been guilty of this in this conversation really badly they like to judge things they like to make strong judgments of things or weak judgments of things and and value things and this is bad this is good i hate this i hate that and a lot of people do it to our films and sometimes it breaks well for us they like it and sometimes you know we're dismissed and criticized and hated and all these things but sometimes i think people don't realize when they're judging our films or the characters in the films they think that they are sort of on olympus and the film is um below them in the valley and they're contemptuous of it when i think sometimes in certain ways the film is judging them the film sort of knows who they are (laughs) knows where they live knows how they think and we're kind of attacking them and that they react against it makes total sense because they've been attacked maybe they don't realize it but you know this plant um has some poison bristles and they've stuck their finger in that and they just think it's a bad plant when it's a plant that wants to sort of combat some of their attitudes. I, th- I think one kind of thing this brings to mind is the idea of you know the, f- the distance between the, f- the film's point of view and the character's point of view, where um, it, I never feel like when watching, especially the something like you know uh, Metropolitan, I never feel like the film is taking the side of a character ideologically. Even it's not really for or against. Yeah. It's almost like we're watching. It's it's. Mm-hmm. It, I actually would compare it maybe to like um, uh, Robert Altman's work in the sense that um, I almost feel like we're observing and le- this group of people and left to make our own judgments. Mm-hmm. And to me, that really, I really like that mode of expression because it um, it prevents the film from ever being this sort of like sincere ideological polemic, yeah. or and um, invites us to make of it what we will, um, which I think is that that feels more true to lived experience than uh than anything else yeah i mean i really think it's important to be fair to i mean so the, um, it sounds like i'm contradicting some of the things i said about um the films and the characters attacking the audience um and damsels and that kind of stuff but i do think this way of playing fair where you don't really stack the deck and load the dice about the situations and the characters and um i do find it something i resent when at the beginning of a film they make these very heavy-handed in you know versions of reality where you know they want you to feel just exactly one way and they they really stack the deck and and it's really unfair and um and yeah, I like to have the characters sort of in that area where, okay, well, this is this person, this is their thing, and and you can 
you know, feel however you want about it, pretty much. Um, there's some contradiction. My favorite example of that in your films is probably Van in The Last Days of Disco, who at the end of the film is... <laughs> I mean, the first time you see hit Van at the end of the, the Last Days of Disco, there's, I think for a lot of people, a reaction of like, who are you? <laughs> who is this person? <laughs> and God help you if you're not good with names, because... He would, he's almost unrecognizable. Oh, yeah. Um, just based on your presumptions. <laughs> but he's got such a great accent. Uh, We're talking about, I mean, I, you've made your general tastes on the stuff uh, <laughs> pretty clear, uh, Wit, as far as how different films approach yes. uh, uh, Verite. Yeah. Sorry um, not to be more frank in my views. <laughs> Sorry to hold back. Um, well, but I'd, I'd love to know if there, uh, 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 does this cut cleanly along like clear lines or are there certain films where you watch them and go, you know, this, this cuts against normally like everything I feel about the subject, but I really liked that film, like, like, um, some, um, like sixties direct cinema film or, uh, uh, some like extremely pretentious, like, <laughs> like European art film. Yeah, it's true. Is there something? That's, that's a good question. Um, sometimes things i just think transcend whatever problems you have with the form or the conceit and they're just really brilliantly done so i was on a um i'm gonna cut usually i film festival juries are just terrible experiences for me because i watch everything and i have very strong opinions and at the end i just completely lose like what i hate gets the prize what i like gets nothing i was on one um jury at Toronto is saying they had Visions jury or all the strange films and I adored the um, the Russian film Russian Ark which is it's a conceit that I despise which is making it like a continuous take oh give me a break and so it's a continuous take going through the Hermitage with sort of historical scenes and other things and I just thought it was beautiful and I really fought for it and got at the um got at the top prize. And then the other film that was in that um, that we were able to give a, a second prize to was um, City of God, the Brazilian film, which I also liked, mm. but I, I preferred a Russian art. But I mean, I like them both a lot. And I was glad, glad to finally get to support films that I admired in a, in a festival. And then the, uh, the last one was just pure mind-numbing art film that the third jury member liked and, and got the third award. The, are there any specific uh, formal elements we haven't touched on, like things like lighting or, or any anything visual or aural that you think play into your philosophy about realism that we haven't touched on? Well, I really like lighting. <laughs> I think there should be lighting. And I think the idea of, oh, we're not using lights is just one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. But, um, uh, I mean, I... I I, I love the good things in the past and I like being sort of admiring of our forebears and our predecessors. And I love studying um, sort of the techniques of earlier epochs of cinema. Um, I just find sort of ways people shot things before were sort of so intelligent and interesting. Um, there's so much content in in the films of the 30s. Uh, they just pack so much into them. I mean, I was thinking today of like the opposite of that. Uh, the picture tells the story. 
uh, a film such as Stage Door, and I wanted to check whether Stage Door was based on a play or whether it was originally a, a film script, but I mean, Stage Door, if I'm remembering the title correctly, is just nothing but these actresses talking and Adolf Monju, and uh, it's just so full of content and uh, and and so interesting. I'm definitely one of those types of cinematographers when I shoot um, that favors using available light. If, uh, I want to. Uh, draw a line between that and natural light. Natural light is the sun. Available light is like the lamp over there. Um, and I, f- I find it personally really freeing because um, I can light using, you know, elements that are part of what people see on screen. Um, it's really difficult to make those look good for telling the story. And there's a lot of cheating that I have to do for that. But I personally find it like tying the things that are actually lighting the characters to things the audience can see opens up a whole wonderful toolkit of unusual textures that I really enjoy. So at least that's kind of my, where I'm personally coming from is uh, I struggle when I'm in a studio, for example, because uh, when I have to come up with a lighting setup out of whole cloth, I kind of, you know, uh, there's like an embarrassment of options. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We had a, we had sort of too much money for last days of disco, too much of the wrong kind of money. And so there was, this tiny scene um, in the manuscript room at the publishing house. And it's the only thing we sort of shot as if we were in a studio because it's a room without windows. It's based on an interior room at Doubleday. And um, people thought it was a good idea that we'd have the removable walls and all that kind of stuff. And, um, oh man, it was the worst thing I've ever been involved in. Um, you know, fabricating this fake room and then the whole thing of the walls coming off. And, and yeah, I, I really think it's helpful being in real locations and all those things. I mean, as far as available light, I'm not sure if this is the thing, but, I mean, Doug Emmett was really great at the backlighting with, with the sun. Um, so there are two moments in Damsels in Distress where that worked really beautifully. Um, there is that thing where the girls... I think it's 10 minutes in, the girls are walking and talking, Violet is talking, and the light hits them, and it's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, and People think it's a big mistake, uh, overexposed, blah, 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 terrible, but it's sort of magical. And then at the end, uh, we have it when um, Greta Gurry character and the Adam Brody character are dancing in the fountain. Um, there, There's that backlighting and the sun, and it's great. The kind of um, the chaos of sunlight to me uh, adds so many opportunities on a set, um, you know, uh, just to create little moments like that, right? Where there are unexpected things that probably we wouldn't have been able to think up of organically. People thought that the blown out sunlight was bad and a mistake. Some people did, yeah. That's a, that's a terrible opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there, there are some things that you think are going to look great and just don't. Um, so a real problem are sort of wide shots that, you know, you look at your eyes and, wow, this is impressive. We've got all these people, blah, blah, blah. We've got all this. And just so many wide shots look like next to nothing. I remember, you know, reading about, there were two tourneurs, no, Maurice and Jacques. I can't remember who was the first, but he used to carry, like in early cinema, he'd carry a branch with leaves around with him. And like whenever he could, he put the branch leaves in front of the camera, and um, uh, you know that's that's good. That's a good t- tactic. And you know, really wet downs are good. Man, you want to wet it down because you know dry asphalt 
doesn't look very good at night. Um, Barcelona, we really needed to finish the film, and uh, we went into this location where they're going to talk about um, the great hamburgers of memory and why Europeans used to think Americans were jerks because the hamburgers in Europe were bad and they knew we liked them, so we must be jerks. Now the hamburgers in Europe are very good. Things have changed, so we couldn't do that anymore. But anyway, in that, in that scene, so it's a scene with uh, um, Chris Eigenman, Taylor Nichols, and uh, the beautiful Tushka Bergen. We got there, and I said I didn't want to do the establishing shot. I didn't want to do the master. And John said, what? We're not doing the master. What? What is this? We're not doing that. I said, no, because you know, I know what we're going to use. We're going to do the, uh, the you know, the two shots cutting together and um that was just so exciting not doing an establishing shot it's uh, kind of an inverse of our will and i's latest film is only establishing shots so oh, terrible uh, <laughs> <laughs> so much of filmmaking is that fool is kind of cueing using these subtle cues to fool the audience into thinking they're looking at a three-dimensional space because yeah. really all we're doing is arranging dots of light on a two-dimensional screen yeah. um and we can you can do so much to cheat that. Um, you mentioned to me earlier uh, that you're using you often, my favorite word. A cheat? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I use that constantly on film sets. Yeah, like you I'm have always to. I, I teach I teach some film, and one of the most common pieces of feedback I get is like, "Cheat your actors away from your walls. You're shooting against a white wall." Yeah. <laughs> and um, and you can like I mean you can make the same side of a room shot in slightly different angles if you if if you find other ways to cue the audience into thinking that they're looking at. 180 degree difference uh you can fool an audience into thinking that a room is totally different than it actually is in reality um i i know that um we didn't have full fabric to cover all the chairs in um in the main living room set in metropolitan so we kept um moving the furniture around so facing the camera it looked like it was fully upholstered and that the scenes look fine but stills often were almost unusable because you'd see the pins and the sort of awkward use of fabric and things like that. Well, listen, this has been a fun talk. Uh, I've learned a lot. Epistemological. Oh. has something to do with knowledge. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to call this episode um, Epistemology with Whit Stillman, and then the first thing you say is going to be, uh, let's not use this word. <laughs> let's call it something else. Anyway, this has been great. Thank you very much for letting me blather yeah. on. And uh, good luck. Oh, of course. Next week, we're going to talk to filmmaker Sophie Rambari about truth and verite in the world of documentary filmmaking. So please do join us for that. Our associate producer is Paige Smith. If you like what you just heard, please consider giving us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. Maybe it's iTunes. Maybe it's something else. You can help us keep the show going at patreon.com slash filmformally. And you can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Till we see you again, everyone. Mm-hmm.